0: Okay, we continue our series on James, and uh, actually this is just the end of the beginning. It's not the beginning of the end, it's the end of the beginning. The first 12 verses in James, where James is talking. The first verse he simply greets, but then he really gets into uh, the subject matter, uh, which is his letter of encouragement to Christians, Jews, Jewish Christians who've been scattered all over the world. And in these first 12 verses, he is talking about trials and trouble and suffering that come into our lives from the outside. And then next week, when Scott's here preaching, even though it looks like a transition, verse uh, 13, it isn't. He simply is making a little bit of a shift from outside trials and temptations to inside ones. And so… James starts right off the bat with a real quick greeting, and he gets in to um, his discussion, which is about the purpose of trials and temptations and troubles. It's relevant to all of us. And now we've read these verses, some of these verses, uh, already for two consecutive weeks. One more time, because we're taking a running start, beginning in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, by the way, that word steadfastness literally in Greek means to hyperstand, It means to stand no matter what is happening around you. And so notice what he says, let that kind of standing have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the rich in his, in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass… Satchel Page once said, a man may be born average, but ain't no man got to be common. And yet today, average really doesn't cut it in most people's eyes. If you're simply average, you are below average. That's how it is today, it seems. Years ago, I remember being in Bethesda, Maryland, staying with a family that I knew, and they had two children. And when I got there, I said, hey, where are the kids? And the guy said, they're at camp. I said, really? when will they be back? He said, two months. I said, two months? What kind of camp is it? He said, well, Johnny is at applied physics camp, and Julie is studying interior design. I said to him, there are really camps like that? He looked at me like I had two heads, and he said, you know, you got to keep them ahead of the curve, don't you? I have a friend in Miami who was my pastor for a couple of years when I lived there. And after I moved, he did something very uh, interesting. He took the one chair that was on the platform behind the pulpit, he took it out and put it into storage. And instead of sitting there, he sat in the congregation with his family. And when it was time for him to preach, he'd get up from the congregation and he'd go up behind the pulpit and he'd begin to preach. And he had good reason to do it. You know, he thought to himself, I'm not their priest. I'm not some mediator between the people in the, in the pews and, and the person in God. I'm not the mediator. I'm, it's the priesthood of all believers. Why should I sit up there and pretend like I'm different than they are? And the first Sunday he did it, he felt good. And that week, at the end of the week, a woman came with a petition. I mean, she was ticked off and so were the people that signed the petition. And the petition said, we want you to restore that pulpit chair right behind the pulpit and we want you to sit there because the young people in this congregation need to know that they have a pastor they can look up to, a man of great authority. He read the petition as she stood there and then he ripped it up in her face and threw it in the trash can. Now, he said, I regretted ripping it up, but not what I said to her. He said, the last thing the young people in this congregation need is somebody who's speaking from Sinai. What they need to see is that someone knows that God doesn't take kindly to usurping His authority and worshiping at the altar of self-importance and self-reliance. Now, that's exactly what James is telling us here in these first 12 verses. When he says, count it all joy, my brothers… When you meet trials of various kinds, what He's saying is, you're going to meet trials just like me. He's not pulling rank. He's not addressing them as the pastor of the Jerusalem church. He's not addressing them as president of the first council in the book of Acts. He's not addressing them in any degree of authority. He's simply saying, you are my brothers and my sisters, and you are being tested. You are experiencing temptation and trial and pain and suffering, and so am I, because trials are common to man." When I started at Princeton, I started with eight weeks of Greek, summer Greek. It was hot in Princeton, and that was totally appropriate because studying Greek for eight weeks made me feel like I was in hell. (laughs) I mean, it was probably the most taxing. Now, all of grammar and translation, in eight weeks, we called it freeze-dried Greek, and when we finished, when we got through it, and there was some attrition, when we got through it, the professor looked at us and said, gentlemen, we just happened to be all men. I mean, there were women at that school, but none of them braved the summer. He said, gentlemen, I would hope from now on you would always have all of your devotions in the original language. And a guy turned to me and said, there go devotions. <laughs> when… James addresses these readers. He's not simply addressing them as their pastor, as their leader, as the brother of Jesus. He's addressing them as brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing a never ending series of troubles just as he does. Maybe that's why he only gives us a one sentence of greeting. In all of the New Testament letters, there are longer greetings, but not in James. Instead of focusing on himself and his authority, he's focusing on their common need, and he says to them, count it all joy. Now think of who these people are. These are Jews who some have been chased out of Palestine… Some are descendants of people who've been taken captive by other nations. They're living in all over the known world at this time. They're Jews who have come to receive what God provides in Jesus Christ. They know Christ And yet they're asking, why is it so difficult to follow Jesus? I mean, why, if Jesus is our healer, if Jesus is our provider, if Jesus is my Lord, why do I struggle so much? I love what Teresa of Avila said, Lord, you'd have more friends if you treated the ones you have a little bit better. (laughs) So what does James do? He writes them words of encouragement. And those words of encouragement, when you reduce them all the way down, it is this, direct your eyes, not to yourself, not to your circumstances, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does it at the end of these 12 verses in a very interesting way, first of all, he talks about the inevitability of trouble. And we've looked at this before, but there's some other things to say. Look at verse 2 again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces hyperstanding, steadfastness. Now, we've studied this verse before, and we've noted that when James uses that one word, when, he indicates that trials are common. Count it all joy, my brothers, when, not if, but when you meet various trials. They don't go away. They are trials for pagans and Christians alike. The only difference is the way a Christian ought to interpret their troubles. In fact, what James is saying is the way you interpret your trouble determines how you deal with them. The way you interpret them determines how you deal with them. Years ago in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there was a young man who studied, began to study at Oral Roberts University. And when he got there, he found that there was a job to be done, and he, it was to be the driver of Oral Roberts. Wherever Oral would go to speak, this guy would drive him. Wherever he'd go to a meeting off campus, this young man would drive Oral Roberts wherever he went. And Last week I mentioned the fact that I was able to have the privilege of picking up Corey Ten Boom from Logan Airport and taking him to our college campus about a, an hour away, and I thought about the difference between that guy's experience driving Oral Roberts and my experience driving Corey Ten Boom. The reason I thought about that is because this guy who used to drive Oral Roberts has become a very famous television preacher. And the gospel he preaches is called the prosperity gospel. And in essence, what the prosperity gospel says is, God doesn't want you sick, poor, or in pain. God wants you to be an overcomer. So listen to what some of the couple of things this preacher says. First of all, he says, when you face trouble, pray to yourself because God is in you and you are in Him. He also said, when you decide to walk by faith, you don't get rid of your trials, you learn to overcome them. Now, think of what he's saying. What he's saying is trials and troubles are obstacles in your life, and the job of the Christian is to overcome them. A victorious life means that those trials and troubles are set aside. Now, that message is about as far away from Corey Ten Boom's message as you can get. You know what she used to do? Almost all the time when she'd speak to a large group, she'd have a, a bit of needlepoint, and she'd pull this needlepoint out of her purse, a large purse, And she'd hold it up, and she'd hold up the backside with all the knots and loose ends, and she'd say, this is the way we see things. And then she'd turn it around, and she'd show a beautiful needlepoint picture, and she said, but this is the way our Lord sees them. If you ask Corey if she ever overcame her troubles, you know what she'd say? I didn't overcome them, my dear. God used them to overcome me. Now think of the difference. That's the same difference and distinction that James is making. God is sovereign and we aren't. He doesn't say overcome your trials. He says count them all joy because through those trials God is overcoming you and all the idols that you've erected in your life. That's what James is saying. In essence, He's saying, don't overcome your trials, enjoy them, because those are the things that God is using to rid yourself of your own self-reliance. Second, notice the intentionality of trials and trouble. Look at verse 5. We've looked at this one before. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, notice that's exactly the opposite of what that Oklahoman preacher says. He says, look inward and pray to yourself because God's there. And James says, no, when you meet trials, what you lack is wisdom. What you lack is divine wisdom from the outside. You need a different perspective. You need wisdom that comes not from you, but from God Himself. You need to understand how God sees this trouble and trial in your life. In 1738, arguably, I don't know. I'm given to hyperbole, asked my wife. <laughs> Arguably, the greatest sermon ever preached was preached. Jonathan Edwards. He entitled it, The Excellency of Christ. And you can get that sermon, and you can read it, and if you read it, it's going to take you about an hour. If I were to read it to you today, it'd take about three hours. He preaches that sermon on one verse, Revelation 5, 6. You know what that says? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And what Edwards does is he takes two opposite images of Jesus, the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God, and he shows us the full range of who Jesus is. Let me give you one of the ways he introduces it. One sentence from Edwards. There is an admirable conjunction of the diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. In other words, you can admire who Jesus is by the diversity of excellencies in Him. Not only is the Lion of Judas the Lamb of God, in Jesus there is infinite highness he is almighty God and there is infinite condescension he becomes a human servant he is at the same time infinitely just and immeasurably grace graceful Jesus at the same time is infinite majesty and transcendent meekness he is at the same time absolute perfection and yet totally patient. He is exceedingly obedient and at the same time he's the ruler of all. There is in Jesus absolute self-sufficiency and yet his entire life demonstrated a thorough going trust. I mean, that's just a little sample. I said it would take three hours to read this sermon out loud to you. And you know what the last hour is? It's application. The Puritans used to call them uses. Okay, you told us all about Jesus. How's that apply to my life? That's application. Probably an hour's worth of application. And one of those points of application is exactly what James is seizing on. James says to us. There is a perfect conjunction between complete satisfaction and ultimate sacrifice and suffering in Jesus. I mean, think of Jesus. John says when the soldiers show up to arrest Him in the Garden of Gethsemane, He speaks one word and these Roman soldiers fall backwards on the ground like dead men. In other words, He's God. And yet that same God days later says to Thomas, put your hand in my side. Put your hands in the nail prints. I mean, think of that. The same one who created all things is willing to be strung up on a cross and suffer immeasurably. There's a conjunction between his sovereignty and his suffering. He suffers in his body. He suffers in his spirit. He suffers in his soul. He suffers comprehensively. And His suffering doesn't begin at the cross. His suffering begins in His incarnation. God becomes man. He comes all the way down to a human woman's womb. Nobody ever suffered like Jesus. The sovereign God suffers more than anyone has ever suffered. Somebody has said, Jesus suffered so that in our sufferings, we might become just like Him. And what James is saying is the intention of trials and trouble is to get us to the place where we come to the end of our wisdom and His wisdom begins to take over. You know what Paul says about Jesus? In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And what Paul is saying, James knows. He knows that the purpose of trials is to drive us away from ourselves and toward Jesus because He alone is the wisdom we need. And then third and finally, notice the illustration of trouble. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God promised to those who love him. What is the crown of life? James tells us. But notice first of all how James sets up this verse. He talks about our number one trial which is prosperity. And he says the reason that prosperity is our number one trial is because it always points us in our own direction. It focuses our attention on ourselves. Bernard of Clairvaux once said, to see a man humble under prosperity is the greatest rarity in the world. Why he says it? Because he knows that prosperity blinds us to the real reason why troubles trouble us. And the reason troubles trouble us is because we've hitched ourselves and our hearts to something that's fading away. You get that? I mean, the reason troubles are trouble to us is because we've hitched our heart and our affections to something that's fading away. And when it fades away, so do we. What James is saying is our affections that are hitched to anything but Jesus are fleeting and temporary. When the stock market crashes, there's so many people that are just blown away by that, buffeted, because they hitch their hearts to their own security. The illustrations are abundant. In 1978, Johnny Erickson, you know she's quadriplegic, dove into the Chesapeake Bay and broke her neck. She writes in a book the story of her roommate, college roommate, Denise Walters, who had severe MS. They were roommates in college One a quadriplegic, the other severely afflicted by MS. And Johnny said not long after college, they had to put Denise into a hospital and then not long after that into a nursing home. And people would visit her. But in time, only her mother came. Her mother would come and read the Bible to her every night. After a couple of months, her feet didn't move. few weeks later her hands could no longer move. But then within a couple of months her worst fear occurred, she became blind. Johnny said, Denise never complained. She seemed to keep her heart fixed on Jesus and for two years she lived like that. And when she died, Johnny said, I asked the obvious question, what good Came from any of this I mean nobody witnessed her faithfulness nobody came and saw her indomitable spirit no one could see how she trusted Jesus in the midst of this searing loss no one heard her words of thanksgiving and for years Johnny lived with that question Lord why did you do that in Denise's life what possible purpose could that serve and then one day Johnny's with some friends and they're talking about it and suddenly they realize that there's another audience. And that's heaven. They realize that Denise, while she was alone from human contact, there were those in heaven who were watching her. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 3. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Do you see what he's saying? There's another audience. And that audience longs to see the wisdom of God who is Jesus Christ. They long to see the fullness of Christ in those He redeems. That's why James says… Blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. He's talking about the greatest thing trials and troubles can do. And that is this. They can make us more and more like Jesus. The one who never fades away. The one who always stands. The one who is the crown of life. You see, because Denise's heart was set on him, even though her body faded away, she never did. That's the reason James has counted all joy, because trials and troubles show us where we're looking, they show us the object of our faith. And more than that, trials and troubles make us real. Remember the velveteen rabbit? Yes, you do. Remember this line? Real isn't how you are made. Real is a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long time, a long, long time, not just plays with you, but really loves you, that's when you become real. Remember what happens to the velveteen rabbit? Loses all its velvet, (laughs) becomes worn and tattered, and yet the uglier the rabbit gets, the more the baby, the child, loves it. Think of it. There is nothing that shows us the excellency of Jesus any more than his trials and troubles. It's his trials and troubles that make him real to us. In fact, it's Jesus' trials and troubles that make us know how important we are to him. It's his trials and troubles that secure for us the crown of life. If Jesus hadn't suffered, we wouldn't know him. And the more we know him and his sufferings, the more we'll know the real Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the end of verse 12. We got a lot more to go. Next week, we're going to turn our attention to our inward trials and temptations. Till then, think about all this. Amen.